history, many different people have suggested that they know when this is going to happen. Uh, in, 19, in 960 A.D., Bernard of Thuringia, a German theologian, calculated 992 A.D. as the most likely year for the world's end. At the time, as the time approached, the panic was widespread. In 1524, February 20th, Johann Stoffler predicted an overwhelming flood. Believers started constructing arks. One man is said to have been trampled to death by a mob attempting to board his specially built vessel. When nothing happened, the calculations were revised and a new date given, 1588. That year also passed without any unusual rainfall. Uh, Solomon Eccles was, a jail, was jailed in London's Bradsdale Prison in 1665, for striding through Smithfield Market carrying a pan of blazing sulfur on his head and proclaiming doom and destruction. Although the end of the world did not follow, the Great Fire of London did in 1666. <laughs> uh, after studying the Bible and the mystic messages of the Great Pyramid in 1874, Charles Taze Russell, founder of that sect that became the Jehovah's Witnesses, concluded that the Second Coming had already taken place. He declared that people had 40 years or until 1914 to enter his faith or be destroyed. Later, he modified the date to be very soon after 1914. Now understand, in the Old Testament, if you did this, you know what would happen to you? You know, everyone would go out to the parking lot, grab a stone, take it to the corner parking lot and give it to you. Because if you were a false prophet, that's what happened in the Old Testament. But anyway, in, in our current year, this has happened. Uh, 16... 16th century seer Nostradamus is said to have favored 1999 as the year of a Martian invasion. Um, it's kind of, I think it's popularized in that movie, Men in Black, maybe. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, so, but you know, in 1988, uh, this NASA engineer, Edgar C. Weissnant, wrote a book prior to that called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And it was a very popular book. Uh, he expected the date somewhere between September 11th and September 13th of 1988. Uh, and by the time the end of that year was reached, more than 4.5 million copies had been sold. Wisenant was certain he had the date right. He said, only the Bible is in error. Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. I, like, I stake my life on Rosh Hashanah 1988. And it didn't happen. His Later books, predicting the rapture in 1989, 1993, and 1994, did not sell nearly as well as the first one. Go figure, eh? I'm just trying to say the reality is, everyone wants to know this question. When? What is a common feature of cults and sects that are not orthodox and built upon the foundation of the Christian faith is that they will provide 
predictions about the date and, 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 and assign a certain moment to it. And the scripture doesn't, says that even the Son of God doesn't know when this is going to happen. But he does talk about it. Uh, there were two questions that the disciples asked Jesus. I have it here. When are these things going to happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Like when? Like, I mean, and we all have this curiosity. When is this going to happen? And, and what signs should we be looking for? Now, he talked about the signs first. He answered that. Here's the next slide here. He, he answers, 114 answers the question number two. What will be the sign? But today's passage, 24 verses 15 to 20, 31, answers the when question. When are these things going to happen? And he gives us a a, a time-stamp historical moment which will help to determine the end time of Jesus Christ. But the problem is, what's going on between now and then? What are we to expect before that happens? So before I can get to verse 15, where he, he gives us a definitive event, I have to just provide some background so you understand as, as we look at the New Testament, what we are expecting. The next slide would tell us that according to John 14, 1 to 3, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17, the rapture of the church is the next event in the prophetic timetable, which will happen before the great tribulation. So there is this period of judgment. But before that period of judgment, this seven-year period, there's this moment called the rapture. John 14, 3, it says this. If I go and make ready a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me, so that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus is telling his disciples, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go up to heaven. I'm making a place for you. I'm coming down, and we're going to go back there together. The second coming of Christ is Jesus returning to this earth and, and setting up and establishing a kingdom. But here he's referring to this thing where, where he's coming down, and he's bringing us back up somewhere. First Thessalonians chapter 4. The next verse, it says this, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's answering this question of what about the dead people that believed in Jesus? What happens to them? He's like, well, they will be resurrected first. And it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be suddenly caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. It doesn't say they're resurrected to walk on the ground and stay on the earth with Jesus. It says we're, we're all moving up into glory and then something else is going on on the earth. This is called the rapture. Maybe you've seen these, these um, bumper stickers, like this one here. Uh, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Have you ever, ever seen one of these, right? So, so basically, yeah, like you could be driving and boom, and suddenly like you're not driving anymore. You're gone, you know. Do your clothes stay behind? I don't know. You know, like who, who knows, right? But even more important, maybe you've seen this, this uh, bumper sticker. In case of rapture, will you feed my dog? <laughs> so, so, I mean, uh, you know. The truth of the matter is, as we enter the tribulation period, um, your dog's got bigger worries <laughs> than, than, than getting fed. I mean, I'm telling you, you know, like, so, so uh, but this is a reality. This was, this was a big thought and talked about when I was a kid. We haven't talked about it a lot in the last 20 years, but I'm glad as Jesus brings this up to bring this to your attention. In 2 Thessalonians, it talks about what's restraining the evil one and will be removed. What is that restraining? It's the Holy Spirit who dwells in the life of every believer. And as the Holy Spirit and his presence is pulled out of the earth because the church is raptured, suddenly it begins the tribulation period. 
period of judgment. And we see in Revelation chapter 6, it starts with these, 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 these um, seals of, of judgment and, and, and a time of, of suffering, which he'll refer to in, in Matthew 20, 24, like we've never seen before. So here's the next slide. The Great Tribulation is a seven-year period of judgment upon the earth prior to the second coming of Christ is described in the book of Revelation, chapter 6 to 16, the seals, trumpets, and bowls of God's wrath, where God's judgment is poured out on the earth. It's the final judgment against sin. It's the final chance for people to turn to God and believe. The king is coming. And in 1 Thessalonians, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, it says this, uh, the next slide there. Oh, yeah, there we go. Believers in the current church age will not be present in the Great Tribulation. You see that? God did not destine us for wrath, but for gaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's in the context of his second coming. So that wrath is coming, but the church is not part of that. In the middle of this Great Tribulation period is this event called the Abomination of Desolation, where the Antichrist stands up and demands the worship of everyone. And that's what Jesus indicates as a marker as he begins this section of the sermon in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 15. Oh, sorry, there's one more slide. <laughs> right here. Here's the slide, right here. Uh, sorry, the next one. Uh, there we go, yeah. Nikki's doing a great job back there. I'm just going to leave it up there for a moment. So here, here's how I see it, as the Scripture teaches it. You are here. See a little red dot? We get raptured, we're, in, we're, we're not present on the earth, but there's the beginning of the sorrows, there's this period in the moment, right in the middle, abomination of desolation, and then the great tribulation, and then the return of Christ, millennium, final judgment, eternity, there you go. And, and, and you see, so we're, we're not present on earth during the tribulation period, you can take a picture of that if you want, I mean, that's sort of, that, that's going to be sort of the, the marker for, for how, how we move through the, the Olivet Discourse, and this ties together, book of Revelation, Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians 15, it's all there. The judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is what's happening, okay? So it's good news and it's bad news. I sense that, like, yeah, there's judgments coming. But if you are in Christ, you're, you're not here. But you are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to be held accountable for your life. So that, we'll get to that in a moment. But so in Revelation, I mean, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, we begin the passage. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He's like, you're reading this. So now he's speaking, Jesus, and this is Matthew, and putting this gospel together. He's a Jewish, you know, it's, it's a gospel written for Jews, for, for Jewish Christians. And I believe this passage and this section written for Jewish, Christ, Christ, <coughs> Jewish Christians during the tribulation period. They're down on earth. They're seeing this stuff happening. They're wondering what's going on, and they find these Bibles, and, and you know, they're reading the Word of God because they're finding Bibles you and I left behind, and they're wondering what is going on. He says, when you see this happening, the Antichrist is this slick peacemaker. He's done what no world leader has ever been able to do. He has established peace in the Middle East, right? Every president has tried, a United States president, to bring peace between the, you know, the Israel and Palestine and all the Middle East. I mean, it's been like a, a, an aspiring you know, peace 
journey throughout the last couple centuries. No one has been successful, but the Antichrist comes along and establishes this, this peace treaty of some sort. Somehow, somehow, the, the Jews began to restore worship in Jerusalem, and even though there's a mosque there now, somehow that's not there, and now they're worshiping in a restored temple, and, and, and there's a restoration of Orthodox Judaism, and there's this peace, and everything is going good and moving on, and then it's suddenly in the middle of this period, boom, this leader stands up and is like, no, I am God, you need to worship me. And for every Jew who has read the scriptures, they realize, no, 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 there is only one God. And that God is a spirit. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, I mean, to, to, you know, as, a, you know as, a, as the image of the invisible God, but truly, like, God is not this man. And so when he references the abomination of desolation, he's saying, now this man has stood up and says, worship me. And, and so, so what's the response to people living on the earth at that time? He says in verse 16, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Verse 17, the one on the roof must not come down to take anything out of his house. And the one in the field, verse 18, must not turn back to get his cloak. When you see that happening, you don't even take the time to run into your house and pack a suitcase. You don't have that time. Your rooftop you know, terrace where you had your, you know, your lawn chairs and your barbecue had an external staircase. You take that external staircase and you start running to the mountains. Jump on the motorbike or the whatever it is, the electric thing, scooter, and get into the mountains as quick as you can. If you're working in the field, and yeah, you left your 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 jacket back at that, you know, corner fence post, don't go back there. Just head into the hills. You don't even have time to run back to the corner to get your jacket in and head. You just get going. He says in verse 19, Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies on those days. Oh, what a rough journey that's going to be. If you've ever traveled with babies, you don't understand what they're talking about here. But this, in, in this period of judgment, boy, you, don't, you know, what a horrible thing. But he says in verse 20, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. I mean, the winter would be the potentially the weather, but uh, winter weather in Israel is not that bad. But the other side of it is, at least if you're in the, in the fall or the summer, you might be able to find something to eat along the way. But in the winter, there's nothing. You're not going to be, there's no grapes on the vine. There's no figs on the tree. There's no olives. I mean, it, that, it's going to be just kind of get what you can. Because he says, and on the Sabbath, of course, if all these Orthodox Jews are around, in this Judean area. They're not working on the Sabbath. So you running will be like a huge tell. Like, oh, there they are. They're running. They must not be, you know, they must be on the other side. You know, let's go get them, you know. So understand, you're, you're, you're outing yourself and you're, when you're running on the Sabbath. So there's a potential risk there. He says in verse 21, for then there will be great, a great suffering. Unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the world until now, or ever will happen. This is why I believe this is a future. Because in the first century, there was, there's, there was nothing in the first century like some of the evils that, that we've experienced in the last century. Nothing. I mean, uh, you know, they, they would never envision something like Hiroshima or the true Holocaust of the Jews in Germany, the real Holocaust. 
I mean, they, they, we've seen horrific evils. You know, the, the events of Rwanda and Bosnia, genocides. I mean, we, we have witnessed and seen some just awful things even in, in our short period of life. What Jesus is describing here is not anything that has happened yet. Because he, he describes it in such definitive and superlative terms. Never, ever has anything as bad as this ever occurred before. Or ever will again. That's what's going to happen here on the earth in the great tribulation period. He says in verse 22, If those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So understand, it's not meaning like it's going to be like a 22-hour day or a 20-hour day or a, you know 18-hour days. What he's saying is, we know that at the abomination of desolation, we've got three and a half years and then it's over. You guys understand this. Some of you students, right, who have summer jobs and they're just awful. You know that August is coming the start of a new school year is coming, a chance for you to get out of that job, <laughs> to be done the job. Some of you that attend school, you know how it's like. You get, you know, like, oh, I just want to finish this degree, but you know that there is a, an end point, that yes, I will finally be done at this point, and that, enable, that gives you the, the power to persevere because you're like, I hate school, but I know once I get those two, three, four years done, yes, I'll be done. Some of you have worked on projects. And maybe with some teams that you don't like working with, but you know this is just a, a six-month project, <laughs> and then it's over, and I, I, I leave. I never have to work with this group of people again. And, and you kind of, those days are cut short, right? Because you know, okay, it's only, it's only another, like, nine months. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. You're saying this is going to be horrific. Now read through the book of Revelation if you want to see what he's talking about. I mean, a third of the water turned to blood. A third of the world dies. And, you know, there's fires, earthquakes. There's just horrible, horrible natural calamities, disasters going on as God judges the earth in the great tribulation period and invites people to believe in him. And many will and many won't. Some will resolutely cling to their self-entitled beliefs and, and cling to the worship of the beast and of the Antichrist. And others will turn to Jesus. Many will die in the tribulation period. And in the book of Revelation, it shows these scenes of, of, of white-clothed people worshiping the Lord. And who are these? These are the ones who died during the tribulation period. There they are, singing, standing before the Lamb and, and before his throne, worshiping him. And so you imagine people in the tribulation period reading this text and saying, okay, I, I, what should I do? I should believe in Jesus first and foremost. And then I should just follow his advice and run away, hide in the mountains, and just trust in him. And, and hopefully, you know, either, either I'll get through this or I die and I go to be with him. It's, 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 it's a win-win if you are in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus and someday half, 90% of us disappear, <laughs> you know what, what the truth is. Turn to Jesus and believe. But why would you wait? Why don't you do that today? There'll be lots of deception in that period of time. Verse 23, it says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Remember, verse 25, I have told you ahead 
of time. And throughout church history, from the first century till today, there has been deceptions upon deceptions upon deceptions upon deceptions. False prophets. Men, women claiming to have special inspirations from God, special messages, special you know, salvations, and, and, and that's the reality. But during the tribulation period, even more intense. Verse 26, it says this. Remember, so I say, so then if someone says to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms. Do not believe him. Okay. He hasn't come back yet. Even if someone would suggest that there's some indication that he has, he has not come back yet. Because he makes it really clear in verses 27 till the end, to verse 31, which we're going to cover today, that when Jesus does return at the second coming, this, he's wrapped up the saints, we're up there in heaven, the judgment seat of Christ, rewards and, and accountability, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then as the tribulation period ends, boom, he's coming down with his saints to the earth, and that's what he's referring to here in verse 27. For just like the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. I have a picture here. This is like lightning. Woohoo! But can you imagine? It's, it's more like the sheet lightning, which is hard to take a picture of, that just brightens up the whole sky. You know, you've been in that. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's dark, darker than dark. Darker than death. And then the lightning flashes and everything is visible. Boom! It's like a, it's like a camera flash. Boom! There it is. Everyone will see his coming. Oh, he came back in Egypt. No, no, he didn't. Oh, he's coming in Russia. Or someone saw him down in Buenos Aires. No, no, no. You're going to see him. It's unmistakable. Just like lightning flashes across the sky and illuminates everything as that sheet lightning, boom, hits. It's like a, a flash of a camera and everything is suddenly illuminated. That is going to be the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in verse 28, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is a, an idiom of the ancient Near East, and, and you know, you got to imagine, i got a picture here. Uh, you know, there's the, the vultures picking away at the, the rib cage there, you know. It's like, you know, the judgment will be obvious. Christ is coming. There is going to be just a, a massive amount of life that is lost in this period of time, and it will be so obvious, but... Christ is coming. The judgment is certain, but also salvation is certain if you believe in Jesus Christ. He describes it in verse 29 to 31. Verse 29, it says this. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the power, powers of heaven will be shaken. So he's quoting the Old Testament here, but this is, this is like, it's going to be unmistakable. At the second coming of Christ, I mean, all these natural phenomena are going to occur in, in the created order because he is the creator. He has, he has power over that. And then it says in verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man arriving on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now you gotta understand, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. 
He's dressed in clothes like you and I would wear if we lived in the first century. He's sitting with other people just like, and, and you, you would walk by the group and not even realize it was Jesus unless you had seen him somewhere else because he just looked normal. And then he's describing this. When Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as the humble carpenter. He's coming back as the king of glory. The king who, who holds power and glory in his hand. There's a majestic arrival that is clearly depicted here in Matthew. We're not waiting for like, you know, some humble buddy to show up and to walk in the door and, and ask us to pour him a coffee. We're waiting for the king. So our posture needs to be a little bit different because sometimes we get kind of buddy-buddy with Jesus, but we ought to realize the great king is arriving and because he has power and glory, he, he, he deserves an, an, a worship that, that no one else deserves. And, and he stands in complete contrast to the, to the Antichrist who is demanding worship. Jesus deserves worship. Power and glory. In verse 31, it says, And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet blast. There's several trumpets that occur in, in the end times. This is the, come on, everybody, you know, it's time to gather. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. The people that have survived the tribulation period, the 144,000 witnesses and others are gathered together as Jesus comes and establishes his earthly kingdom and rules. We want to see perfect, perfect, perfect government. That's when we're going to see it. We won't see it on this side of that. We pray for a government. We seek to be responsible citizens. But perfect government is coming with Jesus Christ. Now, so here's my issue, right? I'm talking about something that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have to go through. So you're like, oh, well, I'm good. <laughs> there, you know, I'm not going to be part of that. But understand this, because what's going to come after this is, yes, you may not be there, but you're still going to be held accountable. Jesus is coming. The king is coming. And he'll spend the rest of the sermon talking about our need to be ready to anticipate his arrival. And to not get discouraged when we see things getting worse. One preacher talked about this story of these two guys that went to this museum. And as they're walking through, there's this one painting. It's called Checkmate. And in the painting, it shows the devil playing chess. And, you know, he's got this smirk on his face because he has boxed the other player into a corner and the game is over. And one of these guys in this two, group of two happened to be a chess master who had won multiple tournaments. And, and, he, and, and, you know, and his friend's like, oh, that's nice. Well, let's keep going. He said, no, no, let me, I want to look at this picture for a little while. And he waited. He's like, no, no, you just go. I'm just going to. And he stared and he stared and he studied and he studied and he's looking at it. And then his friend came back, you know, like two hours later. And he's like, there's something wrong here. He's like, I've been looking at this picture and I've been watching this chessboard. And, and yes. We need to contact the, the, the painter because he titled it wrong. He says the king has, there's one more move here. 
The devil doesn't have the last move. There is one more move that can be made. It's not a checkmate. But you and I are tempted to feel like it is checkmate in our world, right? As we watch the social wheels come off of our, of our engine of our society. As we see the economy hurling towards who knows what as we wonder what future will there be for our kids, as you, as you get, some of you older people are wondering, are they going to be pulling the plug on me when, I, when, I, you know, when I'm out passing out in, in the hospital? Who knows? The king has the last move. And we can count on that. We can cling to that. But let's not be complacent. Because while we may not be part of the tribulation period, we will be held accountable for how we lived our lives and what we did with it. Jesus is not going to be interested in your excuses when you stand before him. Well, I was too busy. I was waiting until I had more money. I was hoping when my retirement I'd have more time. And he's like, you, you had every opportunity. You had every opportunity. And if we really believed he was coming, we probably would do some things differently. Maybe there's some relationships you need to restore. Maybe there's some investments you need to make. Maybe there's some schedule, scheduling in your life that you need to reassign. Maybe there's some selfishness that you need to purge. I don't know. But the king will direct you. He's coming. We'll talk about that next week, but understand, God will bring all evil to an end when he returns. And so when you're with Jesus Christ, when you have Christ and, and you are in a relationship with God, none of this stuff needs to be a worry to you. You can simply cling to him. If you don't know Jesus, I'm inviting you to that. If you know Jesus, I'm inviting you to live in that reality. So team, would you come up, and they're going to lead us in the, in the closing song. The king is coming. I want you to wake up tomorrow morning and, and, and ask yourself the question, what if he comes today? When you go to bed tonight, you can ask yourself the question, well, maybe it'll happen tonight. Let's keep our accounts short and let's keep ourselves available. King, what would you have me to do? How can I invest my life in anticipation of your return? Would you pray with me as we, as we close? Lord, you know everything about us. Our thoughts, our desires, our motivations. You know every selfish moment. You know how we greedily cling to our own time, our own money, our own stuff. Purge that from us, O oh Lord. Make our lives fully available to you in the time period before your return. May whatever you've given us, whatever you've blessed us with, whatever talents we have, be at your disposal, O oh King. We surrender to you, we worship you, and we live in eager expectation of your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek. All right. And also an opportunity for you to cut out. And then while you're out, you can buy 
the Mother's Day gift for Sunday, right? So, yeah, it's kind of a, you know, this is your last warning, right? You know, hey, no excuses. Go get a card, go buy some flowers, chocolate, whatever, you know, you need to do so you're ready for the next Sunday morning when, when we have Mother's Day, right? So we're doing everything we can to, to set you guys up for success, all right? So, uh, so no, no, no excuses. <sighs> you know, I, I looked at that passage this week, and I'm like, how do you get through that passage that Tina kind of mentioned? It's heavy. I'm glad I'm done, and we can move forward to being ready, but it is a wonderful truth that Christ is coming, that the King is returning. And the book of Thessalonians ends, 1 Thessalonians, with this benediction. Now may the God of peace himself make you completely holy, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is trustworthy, and he will, in fact, do this. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God bless you.